0: Good morning, church. It's great to be here with you today. Another uh, beautiful Sunday morning, wonderful weather out today, and it is the first Sunday in August. Can you believe it? Summer is really flying. Uh, It's going by very quickly. Soon, children will be going back to school, and many parents will be saying, yay, right? (laughs) Uh, But looking forward to uh, the end of summer. We have a new memory verse for the month of August that we can say together. It's a great one. It's one that's meant a lot to me uh, over the years. It's one that gives me great comfort and hope for the days that we're living in. John chapter 15, verse 5. Let's say it together. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. John fifteen five. Very good. I hope through the month as we learn that and memorize it together, that it'll be very hopeful to us in the world that we're living in today. A number of weeks ago, we began a new series that we have titled Seven Habits of a Healthy Christian Community. In the first few weeks that we've been together, we've uh, walked through these uh, different priorities, that are a part of our faith community here at Calvary Monument Bible Church. And if you remember, we are doing this series with the following considerations in view. These are habits that help to guide the focus of our ministries here at Calvary Monument Bible Church. We believe that each of these habits were important to and exemplified by Jesus while he ministered on earth. And we also believe that these are habits that were prioritized. And practiced in the earliest forming Christian communities and should still be prioritized and practiced in Christian communities throughout the world today. But we also realize as we work through each of them that in different parts of the world, the way that some of these uh, priorities are practiced is going to look a bit different. And so today we turn our attention to praying continually. We started with worshiping as a 24-7 activity that we do, even outside of the building on Sunday morning. And then last week, we looked at the importance of both pursuing hospitality and receiving hospitality. And today, we turn our attention to prayer. Now, I remember uh, years back, I was in a chapel service. And the pastor that was preaching that morning in the service, he came to talk about prayer And he said for any person that's serving in ministry, when you get up on Sunday morning to talk about prayer, uh, you can come up uh, in one of two ways. You can come up with a giant sledgehammer uh, because he said the reality is in the congregation, in the pews, all of us, most of us probably understand uh, that we could all pray more. Than what we do. So he said, as a pastor or as a ministry leader, you can take uh, the attitude because you have a great sermon that you could really just deliver a sledgehammer to the congregation on. And I sat through sermons like that over the years in the pews. And I remember pastors getting up and preaching and walking out and thinking, oh, oh, I did not pray enough this week, last week, or the next three weeks that are coming. I can just tell I'm not going to pray enough just by what I heard today in the pew. Uh, or, I remember the other posture, he said, um, that we could take. And I hope it's the posture and the tone that you hear in the pews as well. And that's the posture of instruction and what Jesus intended to teach his disciples regarding prayer, how powerful it is, how useful it is, and how we might be motivated by Jesus's words and Jesus's teaching to grow in our prayer lives. So that's what I hope we hear together today, and we're going to really look at unpacking two particular questions as it relates to prayer. First, what did Jesus teach his disciples and intend to teach and communicate to his disciples and all his people regarding prayer? And then second, how can both private and corporate prayer, because they're both very important, how can both private and corporate prayer form and fuel the children of God to accomplish the work of God in the communities, nations, and cultures that he has planned us in. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. It's one of Jesus' most infamous teachings on prayer. We're going to be looking at verses 5 to 15 in Matthew chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there a while. And before we dive into the text this morning, let's take a moment and pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you that it is living, that it's powerful, and that it's active. Thank you that your Holy Spirit uses it uh, to change us and transform us. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised, and we want to praise you well with our lives as we gather here on Sunday morning and with our lives as we live in our communities and the places that you've planted us outside of these walls throughout the week. And Lord, we recognize as we come to your word today that prayer was an incredibly important priority to Jesus. It's one that he practiced and modeled while he was here on earth. And Lord, all of us want to have prayer lives um, and want to give our prayer lives the priority that Jesus gave to his while he was on earth. And so I pray that as we go into your word this morning, as we explore this text together, that the words of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus on prayer would motivate us and move us to understand what a a powerful tool we have in prayer. And Lord, might you use your word to to change and transform us, help us leave from this place today, energized uh, to committing to postures and patterns of prayer uh, that model and follow after the way that Jesus practiced his while he was on earth. And we give you the glory for what you're accomplished in Jesus' name. Amen. And we begin today by looking at the first few verses of Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to look at the posture of, of prayer that Jesus was encouraging. Starting in verse 5, Jesus said this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So there's something for us to consider as we approach the context of this passage today and as we begin to unpack this concept of prayer. And it's interesting, as you look at the context, that Jesus sandwiches this teaching on prayer between two other habits that he also considers as priorities for the Christian life. The first is in verse 2. If you look just up above a few verses, he says this, Thus, whenever you do what? Charitable giving. So whenever you do charitable giving, whenever you pray. And then the second comes later on down in verse 16. And he says this, when you fast. When you fast. Prayer then is seen in the context here as one of three patterns for the Christian life that Jesus is developing in these verses. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. And there's a posture of prayer here that Jesus is encouraging his disciples to follow. It's a posture that, once again, as we've seen so far throughout this series, it's a very countercultural posture to the practice and the habits of the day. In the Jewish faith communities of Jesus' time, people would gather for public worship in a synagogue. And it was here in a synagogue where it would be very possible for one to find themselves surrounded By an audience and then in front of the audience, the person praying could put on full display his or her perceived spirituality through their performance in prayer, wowing their audience with their many words and their depth of thought. Jesus says, don't do this, don't do this, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand out there and, and pray while they're in the synagogue. And they love to pray when they're on the street corners so that everyone can see them. Now, it's important to, to reflect on the reality that Jesus isn't discouraging public or corporate prayer. Rather, he's discouraging a certain attitude or a certain posture that sometimes can and does follow public and corporate prayer. It's a pride or an arrogance, and we've heard the, the term maybe before the dog and pony show or the look at me show. And Jesus, even in this teaching, is inferring that those who pray for an audience or an applause, they'll have their reward. And perhaps here he's highlighting the reality that if we're looking for the praise of people in our public or our corporate prayer lives, most likely, We'll find it as we prop ourselves up to look super spiritual in front of others. And in this teaching, much like in Jesus's other teachings in the New Testament, his aim is not on an outward expression, but rather on an inward reality that's motivating an outward expression. Motives are important for our prayer lives. Much like our last few weeks together where we've touched on worship as a 24-7 habit and hospitality is a matter of the heart more than a matter of the home, the motives behind our prayers and the motives behind our prayer life are important. They were important to Jesus, important enough that he felt like he needed to take time to instruct his disciples in this area. There is a place that Jesus is going to describe where the motives of one's heart can only be questioned and interpreted by God. And that is the privacy of the inner room. Now, when we take this in a literal sense, the inner room in Jesus's day was the place in the house that was most secluded and most private. It was a place where precious few would have been invited. It was a place of intimacy, a place of peace, a place of solitude. mean, Maybe many of us here today or many who are watching online, we might have that space in our house. Some of you have heard the term before prayer closet. Perhaps some of you have a space like this. It's quiet. That's secluded. It's very private. You can go there and, and you're just you and the Lord together, pouring out your heart, listening for him. That still small voice to speak. But in a figurative sense as well, the inner room comes to represent this place where we can wait and we can listen, free from distraction, concern, or care for the noise and the drama of the surrounding world. Sometimes it's a little room, a literal room, a literal space. But other times, as I've talked to, to many of you and many of you have shared with me over the years, and I've talked to other believers and they've shared with me over the years, sometimes. This could be out in the bike ride in the middle of nowhere, maybe 15, 20 miles out, surrounded by nothing but farm fields. And the only thing on your mind is talking to the Lord about what's going on in your life, free from the distractions of the world, from the drama. For some of you, some of you shared for me, it's on a boat with a fishing rod. Some of you talked about that. It's okay. It's quiet. Free from distraction. Just you out in the middle of nature. I've talked to hunters that said that they spend time in prayer in their tree stands. That's a great place to pray. Just you and the deer. And hopefully you're being nice to them. Well, maybe you're not. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay. We all need to eat. <laughs> For me, it's that morning walk. There's some times and some spaces where we just get away. Could be early, could be late, but we're by ourselves. It's this concept of the inner room. And in that space, our focus and our attention is on the Lord. We close the door and we're praying to our Father who's in secret. No one's looking at us, no one's watching, there's no audience, there's no applause. Maybe accept the applause of heaven. Jesus is calling us to a place of humility and dependence. He's calling us away from weak postures of self-dependence and self-reliance and self-centeredness and towards a powerful, God-centered conversation with our Father. You know, many of us, myself included, we're never going to recognize, uh, probably on this earth, the great tool that we've been given in prayer the fullness of that tool and what god accomplishes through it the power that we've been given to commune one on one with the almighty what a beautiful what a powerful tool and when we come to with this posture and this attitude jesus is quick to remind us here as he's teaching that god has this Amazing ability to abundantly provide for all of our needs. Look down at verses 7 and 8 at how God provides. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. You see that word in verse 7, that word that that says empty phrases. That word can also be translated as babble repetitiously. To babble repetitiously. And, And throughout the New Testament, there are some glimpses or evidences of the repetition that were a part of the Gentile or the pagan temple worship. There's a chapter in Acts chapter 19, uh, a scene where worshipers of the goddess Artemis begin to chant. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they chant this for nearly two hours. Over and over and over and over and over and over. Do I need one more? <laughs> Repetition. Again. Great is Artemis 2 hours many words babble empty phrases repetition Friends, heaping up repetitious phrases and and babbling on with many words over long periods of time, it doesn't demonstrate our understanding of a God who already knows what we need and has already determined, not only does he know, but in his divine sovereignty, he's already determined how, if, and when he's going to provide. And this doesn't mean, and again, Jesus isn't saying we should never use repetition, and we should never repeat prayers in the Bible. There are effective tools. Repetition is a great tool that can be learned to uh, use to learn to memorize scriptures and prayers that are in the Bible, hiding the word of God in our heart. It also doesn't mean that we should never pray long prayers. And we can laugh a little bit about this. Anybody? Remember, I remember growing up, uh, we used to have prayer breakout time. I was a part of a ministry, it was called Grace Brother and Boys in the Brother and Church. And in the Brother and Church, we used to have prayer breakout times as part of that ministry. And what would happen is the guys, you know, at the age, I was like kind of like fourth, fifth grade age, you'd break out and you'd go with one of the leaders, one of the guy leaders, and you'd have prayer time with that leader. Now, there were some leaders that you wanted to make sure that you were lined up number wise that you didn't get assigned to. Because you knew if you got assigned to that leader that you were going to be there longer than anybody else that night. And you were going to come out and the capture the flag game was already started. And you were going to be late and you couldn't complain because you were praying. And that's not <laughs> spiritual, to complain about how long you were praying. So I remember trying to like line myself up strategically. It didn't, often didn't work. I usually got assigned to... Uh, To go and pray a long time. Jesus isn't saying we shouldn't pray long prayers here. That's not what he's saying uh, at all. We know know that Jesus. uh, There's examples in the Bible. Like in Luke chapter 6. Where he spent the entire night in prayer. That's a long time to to pray. At least on, on one occasion. Jesus prayed so long. That his disciples did what? They fell asleep. I have not done that before. I don't know. I'm hoping none of you in here have fallen asleep during prayer. Not a good thing, especially when Jesus is the one who's praying. But the problem here in the context of Jesus' ministry and what was going on is the Gentiles of the day, they were relying on the number of words and the length of the time that they spent entertaining their handcrafted idols that weren't even listening to them. In the first place, and Jesus is reminding us that because our God already knows us, he knows us. We've talked about this uh, previously, the last few weeks ago, that Jesus knows us perfectly and intimately. And we don't have to worry ourselves with the length or the wordiness of our prayers. And sometimes that is a setback to us. To pray publicly. Because we think. Oh I, I, I can't pray publicly. I don't know what to say. I, I don't have enough words. And Paul's, or Jesus is kind of encouraging us here. It's okay. They don't have to be long prayers. We don't have to have many deep theological words. It can be simple. Simply speaking to God. As he's revealed himself to be. Our father. Who loves to care for us. He desires relationship with us, and he's promised to provide, according to the riches of his grace, exactly what we need for the day. And instead of repetitious babble and empty phrases, Jesus, as he always does, will provide his followers with a better way. And in the next number of verses, he's going to reveal a pattern for us to follow. And this is a wonderful pattern. It's one that we've sometimes memorized. We occasionally repeat or rehearse for comfort and for strength. It's a prayer that stood the test of time. It's broadly used throughout the world. And it's a way for the church. I believe it's a great way. This prayer that Jesus is going to pray. It's a great way for the church today to practice and to share in solidarity. And we need a little bit more of that today as the church of God. Now, we know the verses that follow in Jesus' teaching here as the Lord's Prayer. And as Jesus taught it, again, his intention is that it would serve as a pattern for his disciples regarding how they should converse with the God of the universe. So let's take a look at the pattern that he gave us. It's in verses 9 to 13. Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil so often overlooked at the beginning of this prayer, but, but I believe it's not to be underestimated, was Jesus' insistence that the disciples of God, that his followers, would refer to God as our Father. Our Father. Now, Father, it connotes a relationship of intimacy and dependence. It wasn't a common term for God that was used in the Old Testament. This would not have been a common phrase that at that time his disciples would have been used to referring to God as. In the first line of the prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray. We're given a statement that refers to both God's imminence He's our father, but also his transcendence is where is he? Where is he? He's in where? In heaven, imminence and transcendence. He's reigning and he's ruling above us. He's close and he's tender like a father, intimately loving and caring, while yet also remaining sovereign and powerful. Both our father and our king, our papa and our Lord, his name is to be honored And as we look at verses 9 and 10, there are three petitions in the prayer that are squarely set upon the Father. They're they're squarely aimed at him. May your name be honored, may your kingdom come, and may your will be done on earth as in heaven. And again, we're reminded that our prayer life should begin with a dependence on God and a reverence for his glory and his majesty. We are to hold sacred the name of God. This is what's instructed in the third commandment. This was one of the commands that was given uh, to the Israelites in the Ten Commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So we begin with dependence and reverence and honor for God's name. The second petition involves God's kingdom coming. Now, good question here, one that we're not going to be able to unpack thoroughly today, but we'll try to address it shortly. What do we mean by the kingdom of God? What does that mean? It's a good question. It's one that scholars have debated for years, and I'm going to take a crack at it today, and you can debate with me later if you'd like to. We'll have some fun, and that's good. That's all good and healthy to do. So one scholar who's added some tremendous insights and contributions into understanding what the term kingdom means or the kingdom of God is a theologian whose name is George Eldon Ladd. And he said this, quote, The kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God, dynamically active to establish his rule among men. This kingdom which will appear as an apocalyptic act at the end of the age, has already come into human history in the person and mission of Jesus to overcome evil, to deliver men from its power, and to bring them into the blessings of God's reign. The kingdom of God involves two great moments, fulfillment within history already and consummation at the end of history, not yet. And so you've heard me talk before about the kingdom of God being an already, but not yet, reality. And I would add that God's kingdom has implications then that are both individual and social. Individually, God is redeeming people through the person of Jesus Christ, whereby he is taking them out of the world and baptizing them into a dynamically social organism that he has called the church. It is this community then, the church, that while on earth is to function as salt and light, demonstrating and practicing the dynamics of the already but not yet future kingdom that is coming. And friends, as we're looking at and exploring together over the last number of weeks and the upcoming weeks, we do this by embracing the postures and attitudes and behaviors of Jesus through the reading and the studying and the application Of the word that he has given us. And in this understanding we gain a glorious gloriously comprehensive image of the kingdom. It's one that is future but also already. It's near and it's far. It's heavenly but also ecclesiastical. It's subversive to this world system. And theocratic in its ultimate allegiance. Inwardly, it's peace promoting, Why outwardly it's transforming. Ultimately, in its final form, this will be utopian. It will be where the believers of God are dwelling together in harmony forever. It's a wonderful thing because the spirit of the living God indwells every follower of God and every follower of God is part of the church. We can practice today, corporately, the ideas of the kingdom while understanding that they will not yet be fully realized until Jesus comes again to establish his messianic kingdom. And this moves us towards the third petition of God, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's here where we acknowledge that his ways are greater than our ways. And when face to face with the most difficult season of his earthly ministry, what did Jesus do? What did he do? When he was face to face with the most difficult time in his life, where did he go? Went to the garden. He went to prayer. He prayed. And knowing what the Lord had planned, knowing what was before him, and how hard and painful that it would be, he prayed what? Not my will. But yours. Not my will, but yours. And though sin and death and the ruler of this world are alive and active today, and though it may often seem as if they have the upper hand, we can still pray to our Father Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, Satan along with the agents of sin and death, have no control. They have no power. They have no authority. The devastation that we see here on earth does not exist in heaven. And when we pray for God's will to be done on earth, we're acknowledging our desire to see our Father's ways overcome the ways of sin and death that are pervasive in the world today. Let me ask you... As as a church, as followers in Christ, do you believe there'd be or we'd have as much turmoil and anxiety and fear and doubt today if we were fully encompassed in these postures and attitudes of prayer that Jesus demonstrated while he was on earth? I just don't believe we would. I don't believe we would. I believe there's much that threatens to tear apart and divide the church today in the world. And you know, one of the greatest things that we've been given to keep the church together and unified is the tool of prayer. Praying churches stay together. Because the wiles and the ways of the world, when they crash against us, they don't stir us up against one another. They drive us back to a dependence on God and his ways. When we pray uh, this way, we're acknowledging God's ways are high above our own. And we want to see them be done on earth as they are in heaven. And so as Jesus continues to teach his disciples to pray, he moves from petitions pertaining and aimed directly at God, our father, towards petitions pertaining his provision for his children. Take a look. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Do not lead us into temptation. And as one scholar has put it, in the fourth petition, the children of God pray for their needs, not their greeds. Pray for their needs, not their greeds. I like that. And this particular petition reminds that fell from heaven, God provides for his people. The hymn writer said it this way, all I have needed, his hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And this this petition, it also doubles down on this posture of dependency that follows the practice of prayer. We're not sufficient to provide for our own needs. We are a people who are needy. Every day, in many ways, at least I am. I don't know. Maybe some of you are like, no, I'm good. (laughs) But I'm a a person who has great need every day. Sometimes every moment. I need God to provide. God, would you give me the patience? Anybody struggle with patience in here? I need supernatural quantities of God's patience indwelling me. To help me live in the world today in a way that's honoring to him. God, give me the wisdom. Give me the understanding. Give me the clarity that I need. Do any of you feel like you need more wisdom and understanding and clarity in the world we live in today? If you do, just pray it. Ask the Lord for it. It's amazing. I, I, I need it. Lord, help me be compassionate. I don't like that person very much. I need your help. See, the thing is, God already knows that you don't like that person very much. He knows (laughs) this intimately. So what do we need to pray for? We need to pray, Lord, help me learn to love this person. I'm struggling. I can't figure it out. They're difficult. They're hard. I get impatient and angry. Those aren't qualities that that are honoring to you, and I want to honor you. Help me. Help me learn to love that person. Lord, I need direction. I need guidance. There's a lot of options in front of me, and I'm not sure what the best one is. I'm not sure where to turn. Would you give me guidance and direction? He'll provide. Lord, I need endurance, because this is hard. This is hard. I need you to help me persevere because I can't do this anymore. I'm growing weary. It's hard for me to be the primary caregiver for this person I love so much and to show up in such a real way in their life every day. This is draining, Lord. Lord, I'm lonely. I feel alone right now. My spouse is gone. They're with you. And I feel like I'm all alone here right now. I need you to fill that void for me. You see we all need the Lord every day, every moment, in many different circumstances. You know when when we when we became a family of 7 seemingly overnight, that's what it felt like. Went from 3 to 7, it was really quick. We prayed a lot of these prayers. One of the prayers I remember praying the most is, Lord, I need energy. (laughs) Supernatural quantities of energy. Because this takes so much more effort than anything I've ever, ever imagined. I need your help. We come to the Lord this way. We're demonstrating that we're not sufficient to provide for ourselves, but we need him. We're dependent on him to provide for us. And guess what? I know Sheila would tell you this, and I would tell you this too. At every single intersection, every single time that we've asked the Lord to provide so that we could love and care for the people that He's placed in our lives, not selfishly for ourselves, but for others, He's provided. Hands down. Never skipped a beat. He's always given us what we needed to get through the next day. It's interesting In the next provision, in the next petition that we see in the prayer, we're confronted with this problem of sin. The problem of sin and our need, our need of God's forgiveness. With the reminder that as a people of God, we are to be about the business of forgiving those who've sinned against us. It's a rather interesting phenomenon in Christianity that we can find ourselves in the habit of minimizing our own sins and our own offenses to God while maximizing the sin of others and making them seemingly unredeemable in the eyes of God. And friends, when we spend more of our time critiquing and judging and criticizing what we perceive to be the sins of other people rather than examining ourselves and our own sins, we demonstrate an ignorance of our own terrible problem with sin and our own need for God's forgiveness. I think this is further application to the message that was preached a few weeks ago by our guest speaker, Adam. If you remember the prayer of the contrite, have mercy on me, a sinner. It was far more precious, far more helpful and uplifting to both the individual praying it and to the community That they were a part of. While the prayer of the self-righteous. Do you remember that one? Thank you Lord that I am not like those people. Look at all the good things I do. That does far more damage. To both the individuals praying it. And the communities that they are a part of. When we recognize how much we have been forgiven of. And we do the hard and humbling work of searching our own hearts and our own minds and our own actions for how we are offending God and others. And then we confess and we repent and we ask forgiveness. We are much more likely to find ourselves in a posture and a position to forgive others. And in the final petition of the Lord's Prayer we see a 3A and a 3B sort of component as Jesus asks us to pray that we won't be led into temptation but rather be delivered from the evil one. And this petition is a way for the children of God to ask that in our testing and temptation that we do not greatly sin against God or others. James teaches us that God tests no one but it does not say that he does not allow for his children to be tested By someone else. Jesus himself was tested in the desert. His tempter was not God, but rather Satan. And Jesus stood up to the temptation perfectly without sinning. And one difficult reality for us who are all alive today is that on this earth, we will experience great pain, great turmoil, great trouble, great tribulation, and probably great temptation Perhaps some of us here today are too young to have seen it or felt it yet, but our senior saints in the room, they can attest to the tribulation that's part of our lives here on earth. Sometimes the testings and temptations and the trials that we face on earth can lead to a stumble, can lead to a fall, broken, distressed relationships, a disruption of our faith, or even an altogether abandonment of God. And when we pray do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We are asking God to help us stand through the difficult times and seasons we face here on earth, to abide in him and not to give runway to Satan. Now finally, as we come to the end of Jesus's teaching on prayer, there's pardon. He comes back to this practice of forgiveness in the context of prayer. And I couldn't help but wrestle with this, this week. It's very interesting. Jesus' teaching on forgiveness is sandwiched immediately before and after the line, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Look at verses 14 and 15, and we'll talk a little bit more about this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father Forgive your trespasses. And as I've wrestled with the context of this throughout the week, my curiosity was piqued to consider if Jesus had a particular temptation in mind, perhaps one related to forgiveness. Friends, there's a dangerous teaching uh, in certain camps of Christianity that expresses that those who are in Christ no longer have a need to ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness because they've already been justified and reconciled unto God. Their argument is that Christ is enough to keep us reconciled, no matter what sin we may do, or no matter what way we might offend God or others. And while we would maintain that our eternal security is firm and secure in Christ, we would not maintain that forgiveness is no longer necessary. The reality is this, our sins can and do disrupt and distress both our heavenly relationship and our earthly relationships. Asking for, offering, and extending forgiveness are essential habits for disciples of Jesus. And Jesus intimately ties these habits into our prayer lives. So if we come to him and we have not been a people of forgiveness... And we're holding an offense against somebody else. There's something that's going to disrupt that line of communication. I I tried to think about it this way this week. Just thinking between my earthly father and myself. My dad, his name's Rick. And uh, some of you have met him before. And if I do something to disrupt my relationship with my father. If I hurt him in some way or say something about him in some way that disrupts my relationship with him. That doesn't change the fact that he's still my father, right? He's still my dad and he'll be my dad forever. But now I've done something that's kind of disrupted or distressed our relationship that needs forgiveness, needs confession and repentance and a humbling of the heart and a contrition to come and to ask forgiveness and in a similar way, if we withhold forgiveness from, from and don't extend it to others when we're asked. Um, perhaps in a similar way, our relationship with our Heavenly Father and certainly with those that we're withholding forgiveness from is disrupted. When someone sins against us on earth as a people who have been forgiven by so much and need continual forgiveness, we as Christ followers church should be leading the way in our communities and neighborhoods when it comes to extending forgiveness. You know, I think our, our, our neighbors um, in the Amish community do a wonderful job of this. They're incredible at this. And some of you, uh, some of you were here uh, in this area, living here, when the school shooting happened, just nearby. I was young in ministry, uh, actually just about a year in, maybe two years in when it happened. And one of the things that I remember from that event that was highlighted was the forgiveness that was extended and offered. I know some of the pastors here that were a part of this church were deeply involved in in some of the reconciliation that took place there. But there's an incredible uh, pattern of forgiveness built within that community. Perhaps if we find ourselves in postures and positions where we're unwilling to forgive, We need to be reminded or we need to remind ourselves of the abundant measure of forgiveness that has been extended to us. Because, friends, we have been forgiven much. And it's interesting to me, as you go into the words of Jesus throughout the New Testament, some of his strongest statements and most poignant words during his earthly ministry, were related to the disciples' need to extend forgiveness and mercy to those who had sinned against them. Jesus taught parables related to this concept. If you remember, he instructed Peter to extend forgiveness without keeping account. He said 70 times seven. He didn't say that, so Peter'd go back to his ledger and mark down one. Okay, I only have. 70 times 7 minus 1 left to go. And then I can be done forgiving that person. The meaning was that it was to be without an account. To continually forgive. So we need to be a people of forgiveness. For both our private and our corporate relationships. And our private and our corporate prayer lives. The question that we Wanted to address today, the second question is, how can private and corporate prayer form and fuel the children of God to accomplish the work of God in the communities and nations and cultures that he has planted us in? And I just wanted to talk briefly about some of the avenues for prayer that are provided here at Calvary Monument Bible Church. Because there are many. This is just a few. I put 10 up here. I probably could brainstorm and think about a number of other ones. But there are weekly opportunities Monthly opportunities, annual opportunities, sporadic opportunities, many different ways that we can practice prayer privately as a faith community on our own, both, and corporately as a faith community. Both are important. And, and I believe, again, as, as the Lord is forming us here as a Christian community in Paradise PA and as a church, prayer needs to be an important and, and vital component. Of our ministries. And we need to be praying together. Corporately. We need to see one another. We need to pray for each other. In groups. Get together with some groups of folks. And pray together. We need to be doing that. And we have some opportunities. Wednesday nights. Saturday mornings. For men. Other ways that we do this. But we need to be privately praying. As well. And we have some opportunities for that. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar. We have a monthly prayer calendar. And if you take that monthly prayer calendar each month, it's in your your weekly once a month. It's out in the lobby as well. And you pray through that every three months. You will have prayed for every person that's part of our faith community and every global partner that we support among a number of other opportunities for prayer that are in that calendar. I, I would encourage you take that. Use it. There's birthday and anniversary lists. It's an easy habit to take that and just lay it next to your materials in the morning for your personal worship time. And just pray for the folks that have birthdays that day. Pray for the folks that have upcoming anniversaries. Uh, Our elders, I'm so thankful for the work that they do in our congregation uh, given to prayer. They do a wonderful job. Many of our elders and and associate elders, men who have served, they take time on Wednesday evening and they lead devotions and they lead our corporate prayer time. Many of them on Sunday morning have offered to be present up here on the stage leading uh, in a posture of prayer for our faith community here at CNBC and I so much appreciate that about them because that it can't just be one person. We all need to be growing in our private and corporate prayer lives. Now, I'd encourage you if there's an opportunity or two up there on the list that maybe you didn't know about or maybe you haven't taken advantage of uh, before, I'd encourage you to jump in and try it. Whether it's Wednesday night prayer meeting, Saturday morning coming for men's prayer meeting, maybe it's just picking up the prayer calendar or maybe it's another opportunity that you see on the screen. It is an important and vital part of our ministries here at CNBC. A healthy Christian community that has woven the habit of prayer into the fabric of its ministries will be continually refreshed by the ever growing qualities of dependence on God, love for one another, and a countercultural freedom from anxiety, hostility, bitterness, and fear. Friends, I just believe that through prayer, God can form and fuel whole and healthy communities that rely on him for their strength, for wisdom, for endurance, and for purpose in this world he has gifted to us. Together, let's grow as a praying community. And as our team comes to lead us in a closing song, let's close in prayer. (inaudible) Papa nu, kinan Siela ela, nu mande puyo tuju respecte na u. Vintabli ou, u, puyo fe volante u solate. Tanku, yo feo nan siela, mange nu bon nu la jodia. Pandanin tu mal, nu fe. Mimjan nu pandanin mu ki fe, nu mal. Pakite nu na satan. Amen. Thank you. That closing prayer was my best attempt in my broken crail at the Lord's Prayer in Creole. And it's a reminder to me that. Um, There are folks represented even in our congregation, but certainly in our communities that do not pray uh, in English as their first language, and our hearts need to uh, be open and responsive to the Lord's leading in their lives as well.